Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, Episode 15, Soul Man. Today, Dr. Glenn Peoples of the Say Hello to My Little Friend podcast joins me once again to discuss his view of the human soul called physicalism. Last time, we discussed physicalism's history in the church, why it's such a minority view, and and we gave Glenn an opportunity to present his biblical case in support of it. Now, I've spent the past three weeks since his first appearance compiling a list of objections, mostly biblical ones, to his position. And for those of you who contacted me with the questions you'd like Glenn to answer, thank so much. Uh, And for all my listeners, whether after this episode you find Glenn's case compelling or not, I hope you'll at least feel as though I'd done a pretty good job of challenging him. Before we get into the interview, I want to share a little bit of my personal life with you and to ask you for your prayers, but I'm going to need a little bit of mood music. Nearly a year ago, I decided to begin powerlifting competitively. Powerlifting is a sport very similar to Olympic weightlifting, uh, but focusing on three different lifts. The squat, the bench press, and the deadlift. In June, I participated in my first ever powerlifting competition, and I think that I did pretty well. I squatted 480 pounds, I bench pressed 341 pounds, and I deadlifted 500 pounds. My second ever competition is coming up pretty soon, here in early December, and I've got about 15 pounds I've got to lose if I'm going to make it into my desired weight class. Now, training is going very well, and I anticipate lifting even heavier in each of the three lifts, but I really need to be diligent with both my diet and my training, and that's both weight training as well as uh, cardio exercise, if I'm going to make weight. So, I'm sharing this with you not only to share a little bit about myself so you get to know me a little bit better, but to, uh, in, in the hopes that you would pray for me, both that I would be diligent with my diet and with my training, um, and also for my safety. I'm getting up there, I'm pretty old, I'm 30 years old, I'm not a young buck anymore, so uh, it's very plausible that I could get hurt. So please pray that God would help me to have this. If you'd like to learn more about powerlifting or check out my exploits in the sport, um, go to my blog at chrisdatepower.blogspot.com. I'll include a link to my show notes, and please do contact me if you have any, I don't know, advice, or if you'd like my advice, or if you have any questions, or anything like that. I encourage your feedback, um, and, uh, you know, like I said, please do pray for me. Next up in the rotation of promos is a promo for the Unbelievable Radio program with Justin Brierley. You're unbelievable. Okay, so you've got their book, read their blog, and downloaded their talks, but where can you hear the arguments of your favorite defenders of faith actually being put forward in the context of a live radio debate? Only one place. Unbelievable is the show and podcast that brings together Christians and non-Christians to discuss apologetics, the Bible, philosophy, God, science, evolution, design, different worldviews and ethics every single week. How can the text of the Bible be authoritative 
if we can't agree on what the text was. Bart's position is that we don't have the original writings. I would say that we do. We don't have the original copies, but we do have the original writing. Professor Dawkins and others acknowledge that there is no evolutionary explanation for the origin of the first life. That caused being agency or mind. God. Do you mean God when you say agency? God, is a, God I mean God. As a, I think it's a likely candidate. But Most atheists feel if life is eternal, then life is cheap. Jesus talked about life in all its fullness, and life in all its fullness requires um, a relationship with the person who called us into existence. I'm Justin Briley, the host of the show, and I'd like to encourage you to tune in to Cutting Edge Apologetics Debate from the heart of London, England at premier.org.uk forward slash unbelievable. You can download the podcast, join the forum, and get in touch wherever you are around the world. That's Unbelievable, the show that brings together Christians and non-Christians, podcasting every Saturday at premier.org.uk forward slash unbelievable. You're unbelievable. Please do check out Justin's show. Uh, as he explained in episode 13 of my podcast, his experiences hosting the show have really caused him to grow in his faith, and I think that listening to the show will have the same effect on you. Also, check out a recent episode in which my guest today, Glenn Peoples, debated an atheist philosopher on the moral argument for God. I thought it was a great episode, and I think that you'll enjoy it too. So with that, let's move into the interview. Joining me again today is my guest and friend, Dr. Glenn Peoples of the Say Hello to My Little Friend podcast. Thanks again for joining me. Thank you for having me again. Um, before we get started, I didn't ask you this in the previous episode, but I, sh I really should have. Um, some of my attentive listeners might recall that it was you who created my podcast, Theme Music. Do you want to let my listeners know where they could go to learn more about the, the music services that you provide? Yeah, yeah, sure. I, I initially just started doing this for podcasts, but uh, um, yeah, music being what it is, you can use it for anything, podcasts or advertising or, or what have you. Um, I have a website, www.thememusic.co.nz or NZ, if you're an American. So you can you can go there and just check it out and see if you like it. Uh, but yeah, it's what I do in my spare time when I'm not doing this in my spare time. Sure. Well, I, I highly recommend your work. You, you did a great job. I'm very satisfied with uh, my theme music. Uh, one thing I meant, I did mention last time was that I know I'm pretty sure you don't want to be the sort of poster child for physicalism. And so, are, are there some uh, people and resources that you could point us to where we could learn more about physicalism and maybe see it articulated and defended? Yeah, there's some really good resources out there in in Christian scholarship. Um, some of the more high-profile Christian physicalists would be uh, the likes of Peter van Inwagen of uh, Notre Dame University, uh, Nancy Murphy, who I've referred to a few times, uh, Joel Green, who's very big in biblical scholarship on that side of things, uh, Warren Brown, Ray Anderson, Kevin Corcoran, uh, the late Reformed theologian Philip Edgecombe Hughes, uh, George Mavrodes, I think, uh, Trenton Merricks, um, Clifford Williams, I mean, I could just be listing names all day. Uh, but if you like... Uh, incidentally, I think that among uh, academic Christian philosophers, it's probably the majority view, which is going to be surprising to some people. Wow. Uh, even though it's not shared by the most popular Christian apologists, which is why a lot of people don't realize that. There are some really good resources written by Christians on this, so I won't try to list them all. Um, one would be In Search of the Soul, which has got 
Contributions from Christians Holding a Wide Range of Opposing Views, uh, edited by Joel Green and Stuart Palmer. Uh, the first one that I saw was called What About the Soul, which is similar but perhaps in a little bit more depth, also edited by uh, Joel Green. The first, no, that wasn't the first one. The first one that I saw was one where I first encountered Nancy Murphy, who has perhaps been uh, most influential on me. And that book is called, oh, what was it, Whatever Happened to the Soul? The other one was called What About the Soul? This one's called Whatever Happened to the Soul? And it's got uh, a whole bunch of essays in there. There's another one by Kevin Corcoran called Soul, Body, and Survival. So there's a lot of really good stuff. What I'll do, if you like, is I'll send you a whole list of these, and you can include them in your show notes if, if people want to look at those further. That would be excellent. Um, if none of my listeners do, I will be. <laughs> um, so now we're going to get the ball rolling here in a minute. But before we get started, having listened back to our interview, if in fact you've done that, um, is there anything that you want to add? Anything that, you know, maybe looking back you wish you'd mentioned, um, you know, maybe a point to add your positive case or anything like that? If you don't, that's okay. I just wanted to give you the opportunity. Yeah, I mean, it was a very basic introductory presentation. And, it's, and as such, I think it was fine. Um the best way to expand on one's case, I think, is to respond to objections. Uh, so I think the audience and those who did raise objections would be the best judge of, of what was missing. Well, I hope that I represent them well. Um, <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Um, Indeed. Now, what I, what I will start with is a, fa- a Facebook message that I got from a friend of mine who um, I guess doesn't quite buy the positive case that you gave us from 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if I can just try and summarize the case that you made from that passage, it was that Paul says that if there's no resurrection, then there's not a way to survive death, um, and, if, and, and, and that our hope is in this life only. And so, therefore, we might as well live it up and enjoy our time here without restraint. Is, is that about right? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Well, so there were three things that I drew out of this friend of mine's uh, message to me. First, just out of happenstance, he, he challenged an argument that you had sent to me an email after our interview Um and in that email that you, you had told me, if dualism is true, then Paul's first argument would fail. For if dualism is true, then Jesus did not need to physically rise in order to secure our future life with him, and we would not, uh, would not in fact be lost without it. Now, what my friend wrote, again, a totally happenstance, I didn't share with him uh, that email. He said, Paul hinges that which is Christianity on the linchpin of Christ's self-authentication, thereby noting that the invalidity of which would result in a plenary rejection of the whole of Christianity. So I think that what my friend was saying was, Kind of the same thing I said to you in response to your email, which is that the centrality of Christ's resurrection to Paul's argument might have had to do with his resurrection confirming that he was who he claimed to be, um, that had Christ not risen, sin wouldn't have been atoned for. In other words, it wasn't his ability to survive after death that was necessary to secure a future, but rather that it was the death of the Messiah who he was confirmed to be by his resurrection. Uh, it was, I, that was really long-winded, but I mean, you know, what, what do you make of it? Um, a couple of things. One of them just came to me while you were speaking, in, in that this is not an ontological argument. That is, this is not an argument that Jesus' death was necessary. Sorry, that Jesus' resurrection was necessary uh, for our sin to be atoned. This is an epistemological argument. It's an argument that Jesus' resurrection was necessary in order for us to realize that uh, our sin has been atoned for because it vindicates Jesus. So this is not actually what makes... Uh, sin atoned for, it's what tells us that sin was atoned for. But the actual answer that I prepared is along the lines of, I think that this is a case of good idea, wrong text. Uh, <laughs> it's, tr- it's, it's true that, that in Christ's resurrection, his identity as the Son of God was vindicated. Uh, this was a major point, for example, in Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Now, he, he's, he's telling them that by raising him from the dead, uh, God has demonstrated who and what Jesus is. 
So that's a true claim, but it's not what Paul is saying here. Uh, there's no part of Paul's argument that stands or falls on Christ's vindication or on the resurrection of, as God's way of demonstrating who Jesus was. Now, he could have appealed to that, but he didn't say so. Uh, people might be tempted to agree with the objection just because they, just like, like I do, they see that Jesus was really vindicated through the resurrection. But Paul doesn't say that anywhere here. What he's saying is that if Jesus didn't rise, then we can't rise. Yes, that's true. But what he does say, I think we agreed on this last episode, was that what he says is that if if there is no resurrection, then Christ didn't rise, and therefore sin hasn't been atoned for. What you're saying is that uh, his his rising from the dead was required to atone for sin, and that that couldn't have been accomplished if he could have survived after death without resurrection. Is that what you're saying? Well, the, the way I would see it is, if all that is needed for us to have eternal life is for Jesus to pay for our sins hmm. and then sec- then secure some way of having everlasting life, then it's not true to say that unless Jesus physically rose, then we can't have eternal life, because we still could have eternal life, it just wouldn't be physical. Hmm. Uh, uh, when in fact the truth of the matter is, uh, by raising Jesus from the dead, he made eternal life possible, and that's because our eternal life is physical in nature. Now in doing so, he also demonstrated that eternal life is possible because it vindicated uh, God's acceptance of Jesus' death. But I, I don't think that's quite the same issue. Okay. Well, I'll mull on that a little bit more, and you know, maybe we'll correspond over email. Um, uh, indeed. Uh, another interesting point that my friend made was, um, in verse 18 it says, those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, and that this seems to implicitly suggest the viability of those who have died physically. Um from the physicalist perspective, would not the dead have perished either way? Um, this is kind of this is what he put it. And in other words, Paul implies that those who've fallen asleep in Christ haven't perished. Um, but from your perspective, by virtue of being dead and therefore in no sense alive, haven't they in fact perished? Right. Um, I, I don't think so. I think that the the term and the idea, more importantly, of perishing here is much more serious than that. Paul is clearly thinking in terms of whether we have a future or not. And the idea is that if we are to have hope in Christ beyond this life, then there needs to be a resurrection. Otherwise, what lies beyond the grave? Well, only one thing, perishing and nothing more. Um, but if dualism were true, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ would not have perished, even though they won't rise. Hmm. Yeah. So so I, 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 I don't think we can say that physicalism... Physicalism is landed with the same problem because I, I just don't think it is. We've still got something beyond the grave that's not just perishing. Yeah. No, I, I would agree, although I will say that I think dualists would probably understand perishing there uh, not as ceasing to be conscious or, or ce- ceasing to exist, but rather um, being punished in one's sins, uh, being, you know, um, going to hell, as, as a lot of Christians would say. Um, yes, yeah, I, I I agree that those two ideas coincide, but then I don't believe that hell consists of eternal torment. So that would probably get me into trouble with them. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, we'll we'll save that for a future episode. Um, <laughs> now there was one more point that he made in this Facebook message, which which actually took me some time to grasp, and I'm not sure why, but I think I gra- I get it now. Yeah. He he. What he said was that in verse 19, Paul writes, "If Christ, if in Christ we have hope in this life only." We are of all people most to be pitied. And, and what my friend said was, by this, Paul suggests an afterlife that presupposes a conscious intermediate state and the resurrection. Now, what I think that he's saying is if is that Paul is speaking of hope as an emotion that we experience while in this life. 
Which, yeah. if, which, you know what I'm saying? Which, if not limited to this life only, must be hope that we'll also experience emotionally in the intermediate state looking forward to the resurrection. What, what, how do you respond to this? Yeah, I think it's a really strange argument. He's interpreting the word in as meaning during. Now, if we only have hope during this life, then there's something wrong. We have to have hope during the afterlife as well. He's basically what he's getting at. Um, when Paul says we have hope, in something. He's not talking about the feeling or the subjective emotional state of hopefulness. He's, he's talking about the object in which we have hope. For example, uh, I might say, Christ is my only hope. And so I would say, I have Christ in hope. Sorry, I have hope in Christ. Right, got right. it backwards. <laughs> yeah. Um, think of Star Wars. I think I used Star Wars last time. But, um, yeah. there's that, there's that holographic projection from R2-D2 where Princess Leia, Leia Organa, says, Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. Now, she's not saying, you're my only subjective feeling of hopefulness. Right. Now, she, she's saying, you are the thing in which I actually place my hope. And I think that what Paul is saying here is that if there's no resurrection, then there's nothing to hope in beyond the grave. Yeah. Uh, this, life, this life is all we have to hope for or to hope in. So he says, if we have hope if we only have hope in this life, like if this life is all we can look for, right. then we sh- then we should be most pitied. And, and I w- I dare say that most dualists probably read it that way as well. I do. <laughs> so yeah, well, I think that's true. Yeah, I think your friend's argument is unique. It's creative, but it's it's probably wrong. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. Um, yeah. Now, so here's an interesting email I received, um, which interestingly enough refers to von Inbogen. Um I actually didn't know that's how you pronounce his name. Um, but it's a metaphys- metaphysical objection. I hope you don't mind. You know, we said that we were going to cover biblical ones, but I wasn't aware of this challenge. So if you don't mind, we'll, we'll tackle this metaphysical objection really quickly. Um, the email that he sent me, he, he put it this way, quote, As someone who is quite sympathetic to Glenn's views, I would like to know what kind of answer Dr. Peoples would give to the following quote by Peter von Inwagen concerning the doctrine of the resurrection. And here's what Do- uh, von Inwagen said. If Socrates was a material thing, a living organism, then if a man who lives at some time after Socrates' death and physical disillusion is to be Socrates, there will have to be some sort of material and causal continuity between the matter that composed Socrates at the moment of his death and the matter that at any time composes that man. But physical disillusion and material and causal continuity are hard to reconcile. To show how the continuity requirement can be satisfied despite appearances or else to show that the continuity requirement is illusory, is a problem that must be solved if a philosophically satisfactory materialist theory of resurrection is to be devised. Now, the listener confessed to me that he said that since this is one of the problems keeping him from fully accepting uh, physicalism, uh, he's, he wants to know what your thoughts on on this are. So what do you make of Invagen's point? In, in order for me to be me in the resurrection, must I be comprised of some immaterial component that survives death? Yeah, there has to be. The idea is that if there's nothing that, that substantially connects you who dies to the you who rises again, then it's just a brand new person. Right. That's the objection. Uh, and and it's, I think it's the best objection against Christian physicalism that exists. Uh, interestingly, it's not a biblical one, and yet it's the <laughs> best one. Um, and, of course, Inwagen didn't consider it to be conclusive. He is, after all, a Christian physicalist. Hmm. Well, Why so- is it as a re- Sorry? No, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say. So, what? 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 What is your? How, how would you answer the, the objection? Well, it, it takes a long time to give a satisfactory answer. Sure. Um, if, if you recall, like I gave a, I, I did a five-part series on the mind-body problem. One of those parts was on this problem all by itself because it's that that interesting. Hmm. Um, yeah, Van Inwagen, like me, says that it's a problem 
to be solved. And he offers his own solution. Uh, I think it's a strange solution. <laughs> he says that there is a kind of quasi-physical survival of death. So it's almost like your body splits and there's a part of your body or something that's physical that is retained and, and, and preserved until the resurrection, which is, well, it's kind of weird, but I, and I don't know if I believe it, but having said that, I'm, I'm not sure that it's any weirder than, than a soul uh, exiting a body and, sure. and, and going somewhere in, in the interim. But there are two options that a Christian physicalist has. Um, you can either argue that there is some sort of, of physical or something like physical continuity between death and resurrection, as Invagen does, and so does uh, Kevin Corcoran, or the Christian can deny that ontological continuity is necessary for personal identity. Now, that is just as complicated as it sounds to explain. <laughs> uh, and I, I can't do it justice, although it does have some interesting supporters who are not dualists. I mean, Jonathan Edwards, for example, had, a, had an ontological theory of existence where that's redundant because an ontological theory is a theory of existence. <laughs> but, but he had an ontological theory uh, called... Uh, the, the word eludes me. But it's this view where reality is like a film strip. And for every instant of reality, God creates a new reality. And so the only reason that you exist in the future is because God creates you in the future. Mm. Um, and so if God, cre if you exist now, and God can create you at any point in the future, and continuity has nothing to do with it. Now, he's not a physicalist. This is Jonathan Edwards. Mm. But you know, there are very interesting metaphysical theories that attempt to account for this kind of thing. Um, it's the kind of thing where I believe that a Christian who is not a philosopher who doesn't necessarily have a background in academia, is justified in sitting back and saying, look, this is the kind of thing that's interesting enough and complicated enough for brilliant minds on each side of the debate to disagree, so I don't need to be able to adjudicate that. All I need to know is, look, it's possible that there is a solution one way or the other. What do I think the Bible says? Right. And I think that's probably the best place. It's, it's where I started. Um, you know, investigating metaphysical questions like that for me was really a case of, okay, here's what I believe God is saying. How should I explain this in a way that makes sense? And there are a variety of ways of going about that. Yeah, and, and, and like you said, I'll, I'll direct my listeners to your uh, series in search of the soul, and, and they can check out some of the resources. You know, I'll, I'll say that from my perspective as somebody, as somebody who's on the fence, um, I I, maybe this sounds kind of strange, but I don't see it being um, uh, vital to find some sort of continuity, um, as, as you put it. You know, as simplistic as this may seem to somebody, you know, to a philosopher, a philosopher like yourself, it would seem to me that if we are physical beings, and if our mind, if our if our being is is dependent upon our physical makeup, then it would seem to me that all that would be required is for that physical makeup to be restored for us to be who we are. I don't know. I, don't, I guess I just don't see the big deal. Yeah, I, I I think it is a big deal. I think it's it presents a genuine problem. Unlike, uh, with all respect to dualists out there, most objections to dualism I don't think are genuine problems. This one I think is, and actually deserves uh, considerable time. Uh, incidentally, occasionalism is the word that I was searching for. That was Jonathan Ebert's view. Oh, okay. Well, like you said, we're not going to be able to do justice to all the possible explanations in this one episode. But uh, yeah, I encourage my listeners to mm. check it out. But but suffice it to say, you think that there are plausible uh, explanations, and that this doesn't this while being a strong objection to your view, this doesn't demolish it. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Now, two two final questions I've received, which aren't so much challenges as much as just simple questions, were put to me by friends of mine. Um, 
One of them asked me at my blog, if we are not spirits within physical bodies, uh, does the Holy Spirit then not dwell within us? And, you know, in other words, does what the New Testament describe as the indwelling of the Holy Spirit cause any problem for physicalism? Yeah. Yeah, well, the question is, of course, what does the Bible say about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? <laughs> I mean, as you say, these are not challenges to dualism. They're, they're questions, and, and they are good ones. I actually think that the question of whether or not the Holy Spirit dwells in each of our individual bodies is, while fascinating, it's quite separate from the physicalism and dualism disagreement. I think you can be a dualist and either affirm or deny this, and you can also be a physicalist and affirm or deny this while being a Christian. A physicalist theory of human nature is compatible with the possibility that God, by his spirit, interacts with the physical world and so with us. Um, I mean, we believe yeah. that a non-physical, we believe that an immaterial God created a material universe. So we have to believe that that kind of interaction can take place. But I think quite apart from the question of human nature, I think that popular, as I see it, the Pentecostal portrait of each of our individual single bodies being individual temples of the Holy Spirit is founded on basic exegetical mistakes. I think the biblical portrait, as I now see it anyway, is that there was one temple in the Old Testament, and now we're taught in Scripture that, that, that what, there are millions of temples? No, I think that there's, there's still one temple in the New Testament. Um, each of us is what the Bible calls living stones, being built together into a holy dwelling place for the Spirit of God. The, and the foundation stones are the apostles, and this is where we get the famous verse about Jesus being the chief cornerstone right. of that temple. Um, that's really where I think the imagery is used. So I think the whole idea of me being a complete self-contained temple and God's Spirit lives in me is a modern, very Western individualistic concept. Uh, we partake in the full life of the Holy Spirit by being caught up in in the work that God is doing through his people, which is the church. Hmm. Now, that was kind of an off-topic rant, but it's something I'm quite passionate about. No, and, and I, 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 I'm kind of inclined to agree. I'd never thought of it that way, but you're absolutely right, except for maybe one or two passages which might seem to suggest that there are billions of temples of the Holy Spirit. You know, um, mm. the, the ones that are more clear, I think, are the ones that speak of the church as analogous to the temple. So, yeah, I'm, mm. I'm inclined to agree. But but either way, I, I, I agree with you. I, I don't think that a physicalist understanding, a physicalist anthropology, I don't think, um, is incompatible with whatever the Bible means by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Um, so, yeah, I agree with you. But the other question that I got asked um, me over the phone was, what does it mean to be created in God's image if we weren't created with an immaterial spirit, given that, that according to Scripture, God is spirit? Yeah, well, one thing I... I if and I know that some people have taken this to mean a variety of things. I mean, some have gone as far as to say, well, God is a trinity, therefore we have three parts. Yeah. Um, but I think it works in reverse against God being spirit as well. Because if we're made in God's image, well, what do we have? We have a body and a soul, according to a dualist. Well, where's God's body? Yeah. <laughs> so, so I don't think it can be used that way. Well, unless you're um, a woman. <laughs> so, well, <yeah. laughs> this is true. Yeah, yeah. But I mean... I mean, the question of what God's image is has been debated by a lot of theologians over the centuries, and most of them have very little to say about it, it having to do with the substances that we're made of. Mostly it has to do with our function and our relationships. Um, I mean, I think the most one of the most plausible suggestions that I've heard is that we are God's representatives in the world. Uh, we are, if you like, the sovereigns over creation. We were given stewardship over that which belongs to God on God's behalf. Hmm. Uh, that's one plausible way of looking at it. Um, 
I currently think it's the best. I may change my mind, but I, I just don't think that the whole body-spirit thing even needs to enter the picture when asking that question. Yeah. Yeah, and I've always understood it to mean that we were created with capacities that God has that animals and other creatures don't, like will, well, maybe not will, but uh, creativity, intelligence, um, community, these, I don't know. Uh, whether or not that's a plausible understanding, the, the point is still that I don't, like you, like you, I don't see there being any any connection between being created in God's image and, and, and having a spirit. I just don't think that that's there. Mm. So, all right. So with all those out of the way, let's get into the, the what I think are the real biblical challenges. But um, like I said toward the end of last time uh, that we talked, although there are a small handful of powerful biblical challenges, I do think that there are um, some less powerful ones and quite quite a number of them, if only because of the meanings that we tend to read into them. So yeah. so I want to go through those first because I think that we could probably get rid of them pretty quickly or maybe not. We'll find out. Um, <laughs> first, uh, so a friend of mine reminded me of a number of verses, um, Deuteronomy 429, 12 passages quoted in the New Testament also, like Matthew 22, 37, Mark 12, 30, Luke 10, 27. These passages are ones which tell us to seek God and to love him and to serve him, quote, with all your heart and with all your soul. Yeah. So how do you understand these passages? Um, well, of course, they all derive from the greatest of all commandments, you know, the Shema. Yeah, you shall love the Lord your God with your with all your heart, soul, and strength. Out of out of um, out of Deuteronomy. The first thing I observe about passages like this is that they don't just say heart and mind. I mean, the one in Matthew 22 says heart, soul, and mind. Well, you'd be hard pressed to say that indicates we've got three substances, you know, a heart and a soul and a mind. Hmm. Uh, I mean, even if you're a person who believes in three substances, well, heart's not one of them. You believe in body, soul, spirit, maybe. Um, the same statement in Mark 12 is worded differently. There it says we should love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So if you add the body, now you've got five substances. <laughs> uh, I think what, what this is showing us is that we shouldn't assume that just because different words are used, it must refer to a different substance. I, mm. that, that, that strikes me as just a, a very strange way to approach language. Yeah. Um, I think the point here is that these were never intended as precise breakdowns of our inventory or our parts or, or, or the, the blueprint. There's an overlap in the way that the Bible uses terms like heart, spirit, soul, and mind. Now, of course, physicalists believe that these words actually refer to things. We think of them as encompassing our passions, our will, our efforts, our thoughts. Uh, and if someone comes along and says, well, that, that must refer to an immaterial soul, well, that's kind of begging the question. Mm. Now, so if we approach the text believing that we're justified in holding dualism already, then yes, we will quite understandably and properly say, okay, so these refer to the functions of our immaterial substance because, you know, you believe that there is such a thing. Mm. But, you know, you would only do that if you already believe that there is, in fact, an immaterial soul that handles those functions. Correct. Otherwise, you'll ju- otherwise you'll just say, well, this is referring to all the various aspects of our person, if you like. So, which aspect of our person does the soul refer to in these passages? What What does it mean to love God with all our soul? Right. Well, I mean, the word soul itself in the in the Old Testament, which is where this is all coming from. I mean, right. it's in the Gospels, but he's just quoting, really. Yes. Um, I mean, the word soul or nefesh has a, a wide range of meanings. I mean, in the broadest possible sense, it means person. It means you. So it could be that he's saying, with let go with, with, with all of you and all of your aspects as well. Uh, or soul can sometimes mean strength. It can sometimes mean life. It, you know, so the range of meanings is such that I think the safest bet is that what Jesus is getting at, the way he's applying this commandment is to say, with everything that is you, serve God. 
And I agree, <laughs> even though I'm not a Good. physicalist yet. Yeah, um, I mean, whether you're a physicalist or not, you can still read it that way. Absolutely. Now, the same friend, he also pointed me to Hebrews 4.12, uh, which reads, The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. And, and then I'll also throw in there First Thessalonians 5.23, which reads, um, May your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the interesting yeah. thing is that these passages, funnily enough, are, are typically used by those who argue that man is comprised not just of body and soul, but also a second immaterial component, the spirit. Um, That's but, right. But, but opponents of that view, like Wayne Grudem, um, he, he argues that these passages, without dividing man into three parts, nevertheless do point to a spiritual immaterial component of man or aspect to man. What do you make of passages like these? I think um, I think Grudem's comments are, with all respect, a little bit self-serving. Let me explain what I mean after I make my initial comments. Sure. The one in one in First Thessalonians, you know, may your body, soul, spirit, what have you, uh, be preserved. I think it's a lot like the command to love God with our whole uh, heart, soul, strength, mind, and anything else that counts as a reference to some aspect of our person. If the purpose of that saying is to offer an inventory of our substances then there's no getting around it. It refers to three, yeah. body, soul, spirit. Now, if Gruden wanted to say that the mere fact that multiple words like soul and spirit are used doesn't show that the writer meant different substances, well, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, Dr. Gruden, then in principle you've explained precisely how a physicalist will view this text. Yeah. I mean, do physicalists believe in bodies? Yeah. Do we believe in souls? Yeah. Do we believe in spirits? Absolutely. The, the question is, what does that have to do with dualism? Mm. Uh, his answer will be, well, we know that souls and spirits refer to these immaterial substances. Well, wait, do we? Right, exactly. <laughs> no, I, not as far as I'm, I'm concerned. So, um, yeah, someone might explain each word indicating a different substance. Well, what's the reason for doing that? It's just assumed, because the reader who is a dualist already uses those terms, and it's a natural tendency you know, as, as theologically interested people to just assume that biblical writers use words in exactly the same way that we do. Sure. Um, for example, when a charismatic opens the New Testament and sees the word tongues, what do they immediately think? They think of what goes on in their Sunday evening services. That's right. Uh, uh, I happen to think it doesn't refer to that. Um, I, I probably the, share your view of that. <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> now, in the example of Hebrews, I, I love that passage. Um, we know that in the New Testament letters, especially those of Paul, which this isn't, but Paul's a good example, the words soul and spirit, or at least their Greek equivalents of, of suke and, and pneuma, I don't think they refer to substances usually. I'm thinking in particular where Paul contrasts the carnal man with the spiritual man. Uh, one of them is natural, as some translations say, or soulish, if we're going to be literal, because the word is sukikos, which is the word for soul. And the other man is spiritual, pneumatikos. Now, without flying off on a tangent, uh, it's not that one man is made of one substance and another man is made of another. They're made of the same kind of stuff. Mm. Uh, the point is that one is man-centered or self-centered or soul-centered, if you like, and the other is God-centered. So that's one possibility, that the word of God separates the good from the bad in the sense of, you know, things that are of man versus things that are of God. But it doesn't, I don't think it even has to mean that. Even dualists, I think, realize that these texts don't have to be read as implying dualism. In fact, I don't just think that, I know it. John Calvin, in my view, one of the one of the best theologians of the Reformation. I think he was wrong about dualism because he was one of the most staunchly dualistic theologians of the Reformation. But here's what he said in his commentary 
about the passage in Hebrews that spoke about the word of God and its power. He said, and I quote, The word soul means often the same with spirit, but when they occur together, the first includes all the affections, and the second means what they call the intellectual faculty. So Paul, writing to the Thessalonians, uses the words when he prays God to keep their spirit and soul and body blameless until the coming of Christ. He refers there to First Thessalonians. He meant no other thing but that they might continue pure and chaste in mind and will and outward affections. Wow. Now this, is his com- this is his commentary on Hebrews. He's saying, look, here in Hebrews it just means the faculties of mind and intellect and will because we know that it means that elsewhere. For example, First Thessalonians. Uh, so that's another passage. So he... Sh- so, you know, in order to show that this text doesn't have dualistic uh, implications, he chose the other text that some people use, you know, to find dualism in the Bible. Right. So, you know, he, he obviously didn't see the need to interpret them that way, and, and nor do I. And if you're a dualist, you don't have to. I mean, there'll be a temptation to, because you'll say, hey, they're using my language. But you'll at least, I hope, concede that they can be understood quite simply without that. Um and so I don't think that texts like this impact on the debate. They will only do so if we start out with the assumption that every time we see a new word, it's got to be referring to a different substance. But I, I just don't think there's any good reason to believe that. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And, um, you know, not not to bring in a whole other, you know, um, uh, ball of wax into the debate, but, but uh, you know, you and I, I think, are, are both preterists. And when we debate people on, say, the Olivet Discourse or Revelation, where things are talked about, like the sun turning dark and the moon turning to blood, uh, um, dispensationalists will oftentimes say, well, look, it says the sun turns dark. How could that have happened? And, and, and the point, that, I guess the point that I'm getting at is they assume that what the text is saying is what the way that they would use that same language. Um, and we, gotta, yeah. we have to put those aside if we're going to actually find out what was originally meant. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole range of theological issues when that's a problem. When we've got to say, look, forget the way I traditionally use this language because I'm trying to find out how they used it. Yeah, exactly. So so now, another friend of mine asked me about passages in the Old Testament which forbid attempts to communicate with or evoke the dead. And I think mm. that what he's referring to is the biblical condemnation of, of what we would call mediums uh, who supposedly have what are typically translated familiar spirits. Uh, the Hebrew word ob is defined as a ghost or, the, or a dead person's spirit. And in places like Leviticus 19.31, um, Leviticus 26 and 27, Deuteronomy 18.11, God prohibits the Israelites from dealing with these kinds of mediums. And, yeah. and it's interesting, in 1 Samuel 28... Even Saul visits the, what we kind of call the witch of Endor, which I think is a little bit of, uh, I don't know, anachronistic. But in verse 8 of 1 Samuel 28, he, Saul tells the woman to conjure up Samuel, who is, or, who had died recently, or, or maybe not so recently. And, and the question that my friend had was, why did at least Saul believe that the dead could be communicated with? And why was Israel commanded not to try to evoke the dead in this way if the dead are simply dead and not conscious? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, there are, two issues there, I think. There's the issue of what God condemned and why he condemned it on the one hand, and then there's the question of what actually happened when they tried um, in the case of Endor. Now, your next question kind of brings up the the witch of Endor, and I'll say more about that there, but just generally about this prohibition. Um, God condemned the attempt to seek guidance from the dead or from I mean, even where familiar spirits don't refer to the dead, but some sort of demon guide is, you know, or whatever the case may be. Uh, why did God condemn it? Well, consider the fact that God forbade people to worship Baal, or Baal, rather, uh, and Molech, and to seek their 
uh, assistance and help. Does that mean that God believes that there really are such beings? <laughs> of as, course not. As Baal? Well, no, exactly. What matters here, I think, is that the people, uh, unfortunately, believed these superstitions, both about uh, uh, foreign gods and also about spirits of the dead. The, God condemns it because he knows that they're inclined to, to behave this way because of their false beliefs. Mm. Um, the issue is that this behavior, both in the case of idols and also in the case of, of trying to seek guidance from the dead, is that they were abandoning God's revelation. They were going elsewhere for guidance, and that was the real hard issue, just like when they turned to idols for assistance, you know, when the crops failed or what have you. As for the question of what was going on at Endor, as I said, I'll just leave that for now, uh, because you're about to ask me a question about that. But the point is, God says, look, don't do these things, because when you do it, you're, you're being unfaithful to me. You're, you're going yeah. elsewhere for, for what only I can give you. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Uh, it could be argued that um, the condemnation was because those who thought that they were communicating with the dead were actually actually communing with uh, demonic spirits. Um, that's that's an argument I've heard as well. Either way, mm. either way, yeah. this just doesn't do any damage to physicalism. That's right. Yeah. Now I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll ask the next question, which which is in yeah. part which is in part based on First Samuel twenty eight, but we'll see that it's not only. Um, mm. The interesting thing about that passage is that it appears, at least, as though Samuel does actually appear to the woman. Uh, we yeah. read in, we read in verse fourteen that Saul knew that the one who had appeared to the woman was Samuel, and then there's this whole conversation between Saul and Samuel. But but even yeah. if that were just an appearance of something that that happened, but it really wasn't. Um, at the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9, Moses and Elijah, both having died centuries earlier, um, they appear and speak with Jesus in the presence of Peter, James, and John. And I really don't think that we would argue that those were not actually Moses and Elijah. So if the dead are simply dead and are not conscious, how did how did at least Elijah and Moses, but also potentially Samuel, appear amongst and communicate with the living? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll deal with the examples in reverse order. So we'll go to the one in the gospel first on, okay. the, on the mountain of transfiguration. Um, the example where Moses and Elijah appeared standing next to Jesus is more straightforward than some people realize because the text actually tells us what took place. Now, not everyone realizes this because of the way that the verse that I'm thinking of is sometimes translated in Matthew 17. In the NIV, for example, just after this event, whatever it is, has taken place, Jesus warns his disciples, tell no one what you have seen. And so I'm going to hone in on some of the grammatical details here, because in that version of the quote, there's the word seen, which is a past tense verb. Uh, but in a more literal translation, there's no verb there. Instead, it's a noun. And what that noun is, is I think, quite significant. Uh, if you look at a more literal translation, like the KJV or the ESV or the NRSV or any really literal version, it says... Tell no one about the vision. That's what oh. Jesus said to his. That's what Jesus said to his disciples. Uh, so the NIV is all by itself. It got it wrong, and the difference is immediately obvious. And there's the oh, answer yeah. to what they, there's the answer to what they actually saw. This isn't some exegetical sleight of hand or, or a word trick on my part. Uh, the noun here is horama, and throughout the New Testament, this is the word that is used for visionary experiences where the visionary sees things that are not actually present, or at least in many cases we know they're not actually present. Uh, a good example is Acts chapter 10, when Peter is on the rooftop, there's that ginormous sheet full of all the animals. <laughs> That's a horama. Now, if that was actually physically present, there would have been a panic. Uh, but this is something that... 
Peter had a subjective experience of, but wasn't physically present. Hmm. It's just something that God showed him. Um, and yet this is exactly what Jesus said had just taken place on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, why would they see a vision of these two if they weren't really there? What would be the purpose of that? Uh, well, my question is, what would be the purpose of them actually standing there? I think seeing a vision in this way expressed a clear message about Jesus. Uh, Jesus ascends the mountain, and it is revealed that he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Elijah is always used as a representative of the prophets, and Moses is always used as a representative of the law. So it was a vision that had a theological message. Ah, uh, Yeah, that, that makes sense. So how about uh, Saul and Samuel? Oh, yeah, yeah, thanks for reminding me. <laughs> sure. um, the case of Samuel and the witch is a really interesting one for a bunch of reasons. Um, and I think it was probably a miracle. <laughs> I mean, I think most people would agree that it was a miracle because it's not a natural phenomenon. It doesn't happen every day. But there are a few possibilities as to what really took place. I mean, a lot of people don't realize this just because our modern or even our old translations uh, give give a version of events where this woman says that she saw a spirit ascending out of the earth. Well, she didn't say that. She said that she saw Elohim coming up out of the earth. She saw God, according to the text. Or gods. Yeah, or gods. But she only saw one being, presumably. Yeah. Um, So this is kind of a one of a kind usage of that word. Now, what, what happened? Well, it could have been a temporary resurrection. I mean... Uh, in the text, she says that she saw him still wrapped up in his burial cloths. Well, who, who among dualists believes that when you die and go to heaven, you take your burial clothes with you? You know, you're still wrapped <laughs> in a, you're still wrapped in a shroud. Well, I, I, I doubt that, that many, if any, do believe that. Um, so there could have been a temporary resurrection with Saul coming up out of the ground. I mean, it does say, I saw this thing coming up out of the ground. And, you know, again, dualists don't believe, at least I think they believe, that, that spirits inhabit some space under the ground. Um, in fact, some orthodox theologians, uh, as far as I know, not even physicalists, have suggested that this was some kind of demonic encounter where in Saul's judgment was announced to him. I, I don't really see the rationale for that. I don't think it's necessary. Um, but it is out there in the literature. Some people have, have proposed this. Uh, could have been a vision as well. But, again, we, well, we just don't know. We have seeing the vision, though. Well, but I guess we do in the Mount of Transfiguration, too, don't we? We, we do. We have all the disciples. Okay. Well, at least all those who were present. Yeah, some of them. <laughs> okay, it goes <laughs> from all to three, but you know what I mean. Now, so if you're a dualist, then you'll add to this list of possibilities the extra possibility that Samuel uh, had his soul... Um, come up out of the ground, whatever it was doing there, I don't know, uh, fully clothed in burial wrappings, uh, and speaking to Saul. But I'm not a dualist, so I, you know, I'll just pick one of the other options, which I think is equally plausible. In fact, I think it's more plausible because I think dualism's false. True. Yeah, and, and I will actually confess, many months ago, I wrote a, a post at my blog about whether or not ghosts exist, because for some strange reason, Christians are fascinated by ghosts. And that's actually, this is actually, me at the time, a staunch dualist, now on the fence, but at the, at the time, a staunch dualist, and I wrote that Saul had been, or Samuel had been temporarily resurrected. Absolutely. So I, at the very least, see that as a very plausible option, and I don't think that a, you have to be a physicalist to do so. Mm. Now, I know that this debate typically focuses on the language of the soul, 
Uh, but there are some passages which use spirit in a way that seems to suggest some immaterial component uh, to man's nature. So, for example, Romans 8.10 says, If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Um, we see similar language in 1 Corinthians 14.14, 14, If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. In Matthew 26.41 reads, The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You know, First Corinthians seven thirty four and Second Corinthians seven one both speak of body and spirit, and and perhaps most challenging of all of these um, are James two twenty six, which says the body without the spirit is dead, and First Corinthians five five, which reads, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now I know I've lumped a bunch of these together, but the point that I'm trying to get at is it seems at least on the surface that this Greek word pneuma rendered spirit in these passages. When it, at least when it's referring to man and not demons or God, refers to some immaterial part of us that is in certain ways independent from the body. What, what do you make of them? Yeah, well, I don't know how it seems that way. I mean, take, for example, uh, I don't know, the one in 1 Corinthians 14, 14. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Well, which one of those things is physical? <laughs> okay, fair enough. Right. Yeah, I mean, I happen to think they're both physically generated in some sense. Uh, but, you know, I don't think there's any distinguishing being done between the physical and, and the non-physical. I think also that the one that you listed as the most challenging is probably the least challenging, and that's the one in James, you know, the, the body without the spirit is dead. James, as you all know, is a very Jewish book. Yes. So it's no, no surprise to read him saying that the body without the spirit is dead. It's a very Jewish way of speaking. It's a very Old Testament way of speaking. Uh, when I spoke with you last time, I looked at the way that the Old Testament speaks about the body coming from the dust of the earth and the breath of the lo- breath of life, same word as spirit, uh, coming from God. And when you die, you know the dust goes back to the earth and the spirit goes back to God. And so it makes sense. You take away the breath of life and, and you, that's it. You're dead. So that's what James two means. It means that the body without the breath of life is dead. Uh, okay. um, now, as for most of the others, I think the issue remains more or less the same as it has. Uh, through all of the texts that we've looked at so far, it's all about philosophical assumptions that, that the person brings to the text. For example, look at Romans 8, the verse you quoted. Imagine, just imagine that it were translated in the following way. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, on the inside you're alive because of righteousness. Hmm. Now just, just imagine that it said that. It doesn't, of course, but imagine that it did. Now, physicalists believe that we have an inner life, a psychological life, or an even deeper level, a spiritual life, a relationship with God. Now, the word spirit quite appropriately applies to this. I think it often means that in the Bible. Um, But, of course, if you think that you already know that a reference to spirit has to be a reference to a different substance, then you won't think that it means those things. You'll think that it means a different substance. Well, I don't think it means that. Um, Or take 1 Corinthians 14 the reference to praying in other languages. The verse there actually says that there are times when a, a person's spirit prays, but their mind or their understanding is unfruitful. Mm. Now, I think that there, too, the word denotes the heart or the inner self. You know, So, in my heart of hearts, I'm praying, but my mind or my understanding is unfruitful. I, I just don't see that any, any new meaning is added to the text when we start supposing that there's another substance being referred to. Um, now, admittedly, the, dif- the difficulty in the one, uh, that one you referred to about the person who is being handed over to Satan, whatever right. that means, so that his flesh will be destroyed, whatever that means, my goodness, um, so that his spirit will be saved. But, you know, I think that understanding that without reference to 
to different substances is going to be no more or less difficult than understanding it as though we're referring to different substances. It's still kind of a, a strange text to get your head around. Sure. Um, I mean, if it doesn't refer to different substances, then it just means that you know, he'll be punished by the state, but he'll still end up being saved. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think the day of the Lord Jesus would probably be uh, the resurrection. Uh, and so I still think that they're gonna ha- he's going to have his body, whoever is this, if this person is saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. I suppose dispensationalists might not think that that's a resurrection. But anyway, um, so, uh, so I mean, I, I, I kind of agree. I, I just still struggle with why it says his spirit would be saved and not he would be saved. Yeah, so do I. But it's, it's, it's one of those texts where I'd say, gosh, that's kind of unusual. Okay, fair enough. I'll, I'll, I'll go with that. Um, now, now, still speaking of the Spirit, and, and these might be a little more challenging, I'm not sure. Uh, the psalmist writes in Psalm 31.5, Into your hand I commit my spirit. On the cross, uh, in Luke 23.46, Jesus quotes this psalm, saying to the Father, Into your hands I commit my spirit. In Acts 7.59, Stephen, while he's being stoned to death, cries out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now, in, in the last time that we talked, you discussed Ecclesiastes 12.7, which reads, The Spirit will return to God who gave it. And you said that this is the breath of life returning to God, speaking of what Adam's body was given when he became animate. And I, I, yeah. I, I think that's plausible. But here's, here's, it seems like, here's the problem for me. Um, in, in, with those other passages I just quoted in mind, looking at Hebrews 12, 20, uh, 12, 22 to 23, it seems to speak of departed spirits or whatever, saying, we've come to the heavenly Jerusalem to myriads of angels and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. I guess it doesn't make much sense to at least some people that we could come to men's spirits and that they could be made perfect if what's being referred to is the breath of life, if that's what Jesus is saying, receive, you know, Father, receive, if that's what Stephen is saying, yeah. Jesus, receive. So what is it, what is the spirit that's made perfect? What is, uh, what is it that the psalmist and Stephen ask God to receive? Oh, I think that the psalmist and Jesus and Stephen literally do mean the breath of life. Okay. Um, you know, it, they're actually saying, look, Ecclesiastes 12.7 is, is happening right now, so I've re- received my breath of life. I mean, I mean, in the case of, of Stephen, at least, he certainly hoped that God would give it back to him one day, of course, True. In, in the resurrection. Um, I think the only problem here is the one in Hebrews that you're looking at. Um, now, and, and I'm not saying that you're at all doing this, but there are some who, who approach physicalism in a, in a hideously simplistic way, and they say, okay, so you're saying that spirit means and only ever means breath of life. Well, here are some pick passages where it doesn't mean breath of life. Ha! Yeah. Okay. But, but no word is like that in the Bible where it only, well, maybe there are some. I shouldn't say that. But many words are such in the Bible that there isn't just one meaning all the time. Yeah. Um, They're equivocal. I mean, yeah. Yeah. In, in, in a good way. I mean, heart, mind, spirit, these things often overlap and frequently, you know, they, they often do in the Bible. One thing I would say of Hebrews 12, though, is that it doesn't say anything about departed spirits, yeah. which is the phrase you use. It just says spirits. Um, it, do- it doesn't connect the spirits of just men to people who have died. Um, it just says that if you're part of the church, then you have come to Mount Zion. You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to the spirits of just men made perfect. You've come to Jesus and so on and so forth. Now, none of that has anything to do with the afterlife. I haven't come to heaven, yeah, some place of disembodied spirits. Sure. I'm not. I'm not dead. I've just come into the church, yeah. and in the church we are, I believe, uh, and this is perhaps a consequence of my Protestant views on justification. We are made perfect. Mm. We are literally yes. counted as absolutely perfect because of because of the fact that God has justified us. I think this is a bit like what the Apostle Paul says 
not that this is Paul, but it's it's like what he says elsewhere when he indicates that we were dead, but God has already raised us up and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, he doesn't mean that we're actually up in the sky, seated anywhere of the sort. It's a spiritual reality. Yeah, So we've been made perfect. We've been raised up um, objectively as a matter of fact, but we don't actually need to leave our bodies and go to heaven for that to happen. All that needs to happen is that God uh, forgives us and treats us as righteous. Yeah. I think that's what he's referring to. So, so he's saying more or less, he's saying to, to righteous people made perfect, the hearts of righteous people made perfect, uh, referring to the living people live alive in the church. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think that's, I, I think that's reasonable. And, and just to be clear, I, I said departed spirits only because I was trying to faithfully represent the objection. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, yeah. 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 The um, point is the, the objection just assumes that they're departed spirits, but it doesn't say that at all. Agreed. Absolutely. But, but one thing that does strike me is, uh, you know, let, let's assume for a moment that Stephen is saying and that Jesus is saying, receive my, receive the breath of life that you originally gave me. Wouldn't it be mm. true that, um, an unbeliever, an unjustified sinner, Technically, his breath of life will be received by God too. That's true. Yes, um, and it, and I mean, Jesus saying on the cross, uh, "Father, into your hands I commend my I commit my spirit." It's not absolutely clear what that means. It may be I surrender, I give up. You know, I've I've been defeated, as it were. Um, but I think the the difference is in the hope of the it, it, the difference for the Christian is that we trust in God, who is the sustainer of life and who will give it back to us forever. Uh, so in a way, and, and I, um, I preached a sermon on martyrdom uh, a few weeks ago now, and I use Stephen as the example where he says something to the effect of, look, hold on to this for me because I'm going to need it, uh, whereas the atheist doesn't have that attitude mm. to God. Okay. Yeah, fair enough. Well, now, what do you make of passages in which one speaks of his or her soul or spirit doing something uh, rather than referring to his or herself? John twelve twenty seven, 27, uh, my soul has become troubled. Luke 1, 46 and 47, Mary says, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Uh, arguably more challenging are passages which speak of the soul going out of or returning to the body. Uh, these are actually passages that Wayne Grudem, po- Wayne Grudem points to. Uh, when Rachel died, Scripture says in Genesis thirty-five eighteen, her soul was departing, in parentheses, for she died. Uh, well, of course, parentheses didn't exist in, in the Hebrew. Um, and then the King James Version in 1 Kings seventeen twenty-one depicts Elijah as praying that God would let this child's soul come into him again. So what is meant when the soul is spoken of in these ways? Yeah, my soul does this, my soul does that. I think for the most part that, uh, and I'm going to be repeating some of this, it's it's a case of people latching on to the fact that the word soul is used at all mm. um, and not appreciating the way that other people use that phraseology. If Jesus said, my heart is troubled, then we wouldn't think anything of it. Mm. But because people have dualistic assumptions about the word soul, then any time the word soul appears, bingo, it's it's dualism. Yeah. Um, but this this is the same Jesus who said, uh, don't let your heart be troubled. And he actually used the word hearts there. And I think it's exactly the same thing. He's saying, don't be troubled. And at another time, he was saying, I'm troubled. Yeah. Um, if you read through, and the book of Psalms is especially good uh, as showing examples of this, you'll find that the phrases, my soul or his soul, uh, are just different ways of referring to the person, generally speaking. Um, I mean, as for passages about the soul disappearing or returning, uh, this is a case where physicalists can appeal to modern translations to support their contention. And I think that if our first exposure to those texts were modern translations and not the King James, because 
a lot of these objections arose because people used the King James Bible. Yeah. Uh, but if 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 we had never had the King James Bible, if the Bible were translated to, Eng- to English for the first time in the 21st century, this issue wouldn't have arisen. Um, take First Kings 17, you know, where the, the child came back to life again because of the of the miracle that God performed through Elijah. Now, in the English Standard Version, we don't read. You know, the soul, uh, we, don't, we don't read anyone saying, let this child's soul come back into him. In the ESV it says, let this child's life come into him again. Mm. And the NIV says the same thing, and so does the NRSV. So pretty much all the modern translations do it this way. Uh, or the example you gave in Genesis 35. Um, the NIV says, not that her soul was departing, but it says, and I quote, and she breathed her last, for she was dying. Mm. End quote. Now, it does that because the word for soul, nefesh, uh, meaning variously creature or life or what have you, it means a creature that breathes. You know, it comes from the Hebrew verb nefesh or nefesh, sorry, which means breathe. Um, and I think the NIV goes too far because one of the most common meanings of nefesh is life, which is what it appears to mean here. I mean, if it just said um, her life was departing, she was dying. I mean, that would make perfect sense in English. Mm. And given given that nefesh so commonly means life in the Old Testament, I don't see why it shouldn't mean that here too. Uh, and, and it really is common. I mean, just check uh, a Hebrew concordance, and you'll see that th- this may even be the most common way that the word nefesh is used for the word life. Yeah. So her life, her life was departing, just like the boy in, in 1 Kings 17 when his life returned. So, so you, you would say that departing and returning is anthropomorph or anthro yeah anthropomorphic language. Well, I don't think we have to think of it as going anywhere. I mean, we can certainly think of it as gone when you die, just like your eyesight uh, goes mm. you know, when you, when you but it doesn't go anywhere; it just goes. Well, yeah, but wouldn't 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 eyesight going be in and of itself anthropomorphic language? I mean, what we're doing is we're saying that something that was there is gone, but we're using language of travel to do it right i mean yeah so, so yeah, I, and we do that all the time too not just with with theology but just with the way we talk yes like like with eyesight for example yeah absolutely like absolutely. If, you, if you were going blind you could say oh my my eyesight is is abandoning me he might say something like that even though it's you on that because they know what you mean yeah i i agree and so well, so with all that in mind, I was going to ask you a question about Psalm 23 and Psalm 19.7 where it says, uh, where it talks about restoring the soul. But based on everything that we said, would you just understand this to be meaning uh, the psalmist saying that God restores me or restores my life? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, soul means me. It can mean strength. It can mean my vitality. It can mean a whole range of things. But the bottom line is God is sustaining and restoring me. Yeah. All right, well, I've got two more challenges before I get to what I think are the, the, the best ones. Uh, in Matthew 22, verses 31 and 32, Jesus answers a challenge to the resurrection, saying, um, Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Uh, and then we see this in, mm. the other, in two of the other Gospels as well. Now, a friend of mine pointed me to these Jesus words as evidence against physicalism. And he wrote this. He said, although the context of the text is on the topic of the resurrection, the Lord Jesus provides us with an important insight that transcends the immediate context by virtue of the fact that it is grounded in the identity of God. The Lord Jesus stated he is not the God of the dead, but of the living in reference to the patriarchs who had long since died. Now, my friend's point is, and he continues to point to the Mount of Transfiguration that we looked at before as confirming this, is that for God to be the God of the living 
and yet at the same time be the god of the deceased patriarchs. Those deceased patriarchs must in some sense have been alive at that time, if only in the intermediate state. What do you think of, of this argument? Um, I understand why somebody would raise it, but I mean, I think Jesus actually tells us what he means. I mean, when the, the Sadducees raise this objection, what's the very first thing he says? Regarding- well, first, of all, he talk- first of all, he talks about marriage, but then he, then he comes to the question of resurrection and he says, but concerning the dead that they do rise, yeah. have you not read? And then he goes back. So according to Jesus, this is a way of proving resurrection. Uh, now, if this simply meant God is the God of the living and not the dead, um, and by this I mean that they are metaphysically alive out there right now, well, how would that prove resurrection? Exactly. It, yeah. it wouldn't. I mean, the Sadducees could say, oh, look, okay, look, hypothetically, we grant that they're alive out there somewhere, but we were trying to challenge you on the notion that the dead rise. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> and he hasn't done that, unless this is specifically a way of, of saying that they're alive in virtue of the fact that God counts them as alive because he will raise them from the dead. Okay, so, so in other words, it's not just, I mean, not only does Jesus explicitly say that the argument he's making is concerning the resurrection of the dead, um, but, but furthermore, if we assume that the argument applies um, to those living while dead, in the sense of being conscious in death, that would actually destroy his whole case. Well, I mean, it wouldn't show that the dead don't rise, but it would mean that he'd failed to give any reason to believe that they will rise, which is what he was actually trying to do. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, and the uh, the last the last passage that I want to look at is um, before the really challenging ones, or at least the commonly used ones, is John five twenty four, where Jesus says, "He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life." has passed out of death into life. Now, pointing to this passage, my friend writes, the believer possesses eternal life. Should physicalism be correct, this powerful statement by the Lord Jesus could not be true. How can a person possess eternal life and yet exist in a conscious, conscienceless state, bound by the constraints of the grave? While physical death is the temporal ending of the fleshly life of the believer, the spirit of the believer lives on and is with Christ. What's your response? To yeah, that's an interesting one. I mean... When there are a couple of ways you can approach this, you can say, "Look, Jesus says that we have eternal life, and yet we still know that death takes place. Uh, therefore, Jesus uh, must mean something like we still are guaranteed of eternal life, or we still own eternal life, or, or as as the Apostle Paul put it, you know, we have the deposit of eternal life, which is the Spirit." Um, or you could say. Well, Jesus says that we have eternal life, therefore death must be some sort of illusion, and and it must not really take place. But in fact, we uh, we just live in spite of the fact that we appear to die. Now, I don't think that Jesus saw redemption from death as something non-physical. I think he repeatedly, I mean, elsewhere, for example, he says, he who believes in me has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. Mm-hmm. This might even be the same text, I don't know, because uh, um, you because of where you stop the quote, the very next line may have been, and I will raise him up at the last day. But redemption from death would is not merely some sort of illusory thing. It's not that we can be utterly redeemed from death, but still appear to be frail and dying and sick and mortal. Um, I don't. Th- I think that redemption from death is absolute and complete, and we'll know when it's taken place because we won't die anymore. Hmm. And so, and so that. Uh, to me, indicates that when Jesus says that you've passed from death to life, he's talking about eternity. He's not talking about the here and now. He's not, 
He's not saying, I mean, Jesus also says you'll never thirst. Um, but that doesn't mean we aren't going to get thirsty in the here and now. Um, Jesus says, you know, you won't hunger. It doesn't mean we aren't going to get hungry or starve to death in the here and now. And so Jesus says you've passed from death to life. It doesn't mean we aren't going to die. It just means that that's not our if you're, our eternal destiny. But this is, this is a rough and ready answer. But I think that whenever Jesus provides an explanation of how this could possibly be true, he does so in terms of resurrection. I mean, he says, you believe in me, you have eternal life, and I'll raise you up at the last day. I don't think he means you have eternal life, and on top of that, I'll also raise you up at the last day. I think he means you'll have eternal life because I will raise you up at the last day. You've just listened to the first hour of what turned out to be more than two hours of discussion, so I've broken it up into two parts for your listening convenience. The next episode in the feed, episode 16, resumes where we've just left off, so take a break, give your brain a rest, and when you're ready, come back and join Glenn and me for the second half or so of our discussion. Until then... Thank you.